0: Hello, this is Harold Lapidus, and welcome to the Boston Herald Podcast. Some of you may be aware of me, but for those who are not, you can read my bio on my Podbean page. This is episode zero. This is me finding my voice. In the future, this podcast will feature interviews with people involved with music in one way or another, and occasionally, short podcasts about some breaking news. The purpose of this first episode is to practice speaking into my computer. So settle in and get ready. Today I'll be focusing on the Beatles. I'll be recalling my personal experience around the time of John Lennon's death, which took place in December 1980. I will also talk about Ringo Starr disrupting a Bob Dylan concert in New York last November. However, I'll start with this. Olivia Harrison, George Harrison's widow, was recently interviewed by host and singer-songwriter Laura Cantrell on the Dark Horse program, which can be heard on Sirius XM's The Beatles Channel. Olivia hinted at a 50th anniversary expanded edition of George's 1970 triple album, All Things Must Pass. After discussing the 30th anniversary edition from the year 2000, Cantrell asked if there might be any surprises for the 50th anniversary. Olivia replied saying that she hoped so, adding that there were unreleased acoustic versions of George playing songs from the album. She said she'd been listening to cassettes, dats, and dictaphone tapes for years. Recently came across a cassette where George said, maybe I'm gonna make my own album one day, and singing songs to his sister-in-law may or may not be Jennifer Boyd of Jennifer Juniper fame. So according to Olivia, there are some beautiful recordings of George just playing some songs that ended up on All Things Was Past, so hopefully these will be included in the 50th anniversary issue. Did Ringo Starr disrupt Bob Dylan's performance at New York's Beacon Theater last year? On the Fab Forum, another program on the Beatles channel, resident Beatles expert Tom Frangione said that Dylan was playing some shows at the Beacon Theater in New York and spotted on Monday night, November 26th, was none other than Ringo Starr. Frangione said he heard a couple of days later from a friend of his that during All Along the Watchtower, which is one of the encores, Bob just kind of blanks out and forgets the words at one point. After the concert, Frangione's friend spoke to Bob's bass player, Tony Garnier, and asked, What happened there? Bob told Tony that there was a person taking pictures in the third row. And for those who don't know, Bob is known for not allowing audio or photographic devices at his shows. So the next day, on Ringo's Twitter feed, he posted a picture of Bob Dylan at the Beacon with the caption, Thanks for the great night, Bob. Bob Dylan at the Beacon. Rock on. Peace and love. Followed by nine little emojis. So, I guess Ringo did distract Dylan at the show. If anyone can get away with it, it would be Ringo. Okay, so, December marked the sad anniversary. John Lennon died on December 8th, 1980, which also happened to be my birthday. Every date is remembered on social media and elsewhere. People comment on where they were, how they heard about it, and how it affected them. I will now share with you my take. I was walking home from an Iggy Pop concert at the Paradise Club in Boston with my college roommate, Sean. We arrived home at about 11.30 or so, maybe it was a bit later. Anyway, I could hear the phone ringing from outside the apartment door, and I assumed somebody really wanted to wish me a happy birthday. I rushed in. It was my sister Barbara. Did you hear, she said? John was murdered. I called over to my roommate, who was already in the other room, to tell him. He turned on Boston's underground radio station, WBCN. They were playing the song Love from Plastic Ono Band. He looked at me and said, it's true. It showed the power of the rock music community in those days. My sister, aware of the irony, then apologetically wished me a happy birthday. Immediately, immediately thought of John's five-year-old son, Sean, and John's wife, partner, Muse, and now widow, Yoko Ono. John had just walked back into the spotlight after five years as a house husband, spent mostly out of the public eye. Now a son was robbed of a father, and you were robbed of a friend, brother, teacher, preacher, politician, philosopher, comedian, actor, singer, songwriter, musician, artist, rebel, and icon. One of the few people in rock music that can be called a true genius. I didn't know what to do with myself. I called my parents and a few of my closest friends at the time, and then I went to my room to turn on the radio. I was conflicted. Anything about the Beatles would normally mean that I would get out a blank cassette and record it. But this? I don't know. Anyway, I waited. I remember Oedipus, the program director, was on the air. He was scrambling, clearly affected by the news. This was before radio was completely programmed. This was Radio Free Boston. WBCN was playing John's music exclusively, mostly from his days as a Beatle. Oedipus was also trying to recall and place songs which mentioned John's name in the lyrics. I remember T-Rex's Ballrooms of Mars and Tim Curry's I Do the Rock. It was all from this passion and knowledge. This was before the internet. You really had to know your stuff. Other DJs showed up to share their grief. Again, this was the power of FM radio in those days. I braced myself for whatever news would emerge. One thing I remember for sure, I did not want to hear the name of the person that committed this crime. WBCN's afternoon DJ, Mark Parento brought a recording of a phone interview he did with John in 1974 when Mark worked at him. FM Detroit Rock Station. John was doing a lot of promotion for his new album, Walls and Bridges, at the time. It was his first real hit record since Imagine in 1971. The station put a hold on airing any commercials just before playing the interview. There had been an ad for a band called 999. 999 is the British phone number for the police, the equivalent of 911 here in the States. They had a new album and a song called Homicide, and that played under the narration. It was too raw and painful to hear at the time. Oedipus announced all ads would have to be monitored, and for the next 24 hours, WBCN went commercial-free. It was all London, all the time. Except for one major misstep. That afternoon, Prento played a song listeners were requesting as a tribute. It was the Kansas song, All We Are Is Dust In The Wind, as if I didn't hate that song enough already. When it was announced this rare interview was about to be aired, I found a Maxell tape, placed it in my cassette deck, and pressed record. Frento choked up, Called that John called him by his first name a few times during the interview. It was so great to hear John's Liverpool accent at that moment, yet it was so sad. That's all we would have from now on. No more interviews, no more music, no more insights, no more John. This hurt for so many reasons, and I don't have to list them here, but John was always a beacon of hope and optimism, even when he was being negative. But I think what really hurt was that he always seemed like he was the most alive person on the planet, he fully dove into everything he felt passionate about, and he had no safety net. That's just one of the reasons he was admired. Now he was gone. The music chosen by WBCN was pretty mellow. I remember thinking I needed to hear John sing some rock and roll. John had the best rock and roll voice ever. I was about to put on my own copy of Live Piece in Toronto, but somebody at BCN had the same idea. just a weird coincidence. I listened to the radio past 3 a.m., then realized I needed to go to bed. At the time, while at college, I had a job working in the university darkroom. As always on Tuesday, I brought my little alarm clock radio to work just to help pass the time. One student came in to develop film for her photography class and noticed there was a theme emanating from my radio. They sure are playing a lot of Beatles today, she commented. That's how slowly news traveled. Didn't you hear? I kind of overreacted. She didn't seem particularly affected, but you could tell that it affected me. She suggested I buy the various editions of the Boston Globe throughout the day. That was one way to get updates. I bought a few copies at the local store 24. Luckily, my friend Mark was interning at the Boston Globe at the time and saved one copy of each edition from that day for me. As John predicted, no matter what he accomplished in his solo career, when he died, the headlines would read, Ex-Beatle, John Lennon Dead. He was pretty close. After work, I made my usual round of record stores. I stopped at Strawberries in Boston's Copley Square. I hadn't realized it was owned by Morris Levy, the same guy who made John's life a legal nightmare in the mid-1970s. I looked at the John Lennon LP section. It was empty, of course. The albums on either side of the section were slumped forward. I still hadn't bought Double Fantasy. I was working for a local music paper at the time and had walked up to WBCN and begged them for a pre-release promo copy of John's soon-to-be-released single, Just Like Starting Over. They obliged, saying all I had to do was mention WBC when I reviewed it. It was the same song on both sides, a cool little collectible. I also bought the commercial version, with Yoko's Kiss 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 on the B-side when it came out. I was so happy Yoko had released such a current sounding record, in some ways it was cooler than John's. However, I didn't rush out to buy the album. This happened occasionally. The Beatles had such an effect on me that sometimes I would force myself to wait before buying their latest release. Of course, it wouldn't be long before I would capitulate. I did find a record to buy, however. Ironically, they had just released a commercial version of a Paul McCartney interview record conducted for a musician magazine. It was now an officially sanctioned release on Columbia Records, previously only available as a promo. I brought it to the counter. The clerk looked disapprovingly at me. I kind of understood, but hey, I was not going to buy it. Life goes on. On Tuesday night, I watched the news on my little black and white TV set. Reporting on John's murder, there were images of Friar Park, George's home, and Ringo with his soon-to-be wife, Barbara Bach, arriving at the Dakota. There's also footage of Paul walking down the steps of EMI's Abbey Road Studios, looking as sad and shaken as you would imagine. The press was gathered around like vultures, awaiting a quote. When Paul finally spoke, all that could come out was, it's a drag. Some thought it callous, but I got it. Paul, always the diplomat, figured it was his duty to be an adult and meet the press. He'd been recording and reminiscing with Beatles producer George Martin at the start of the tug of war sessions, working on a song called Rain Clouds, the place where the Beatles created their magic. Paul looked like hell, as you'd expect. He felt he had to say something, so once a drag came out. What else could you say? For the album, he'd more eloquently write the song Here Today in tribute. That night, I stayed up extra late, hoping to catch a rerun of John on Tom Snyder's late night talk show of 1975. I'd heard about it, but I'd never seen it. This was before videos and YouTube. I looked out, and they showed it. My sister had already planned a little birthday celebration for me that weekend. I suggested we cancel it. I don't want to spoil the party, I said, but she insisted, and I'm glad she did. A tribute to John was initially scheduled locally on Saturday, but a 10-minute silent vigil was rescheduled to coincide with Yoko's wishes. She designated a specific time on Sunday so it could be celebrated and honored around the world. I didn't feel the need to be part of that. Remember, I was taking the subway to my sister's place. When the time for the moment of silence arrived, I sat on a bench with my own private silent tribute. Two little girls saw me and must have noticed how sad I looked. They looked like angels. I gave them a little smile, and then they walked away. I arrived at my sister's place in the Back Bay. She had been borrowing my copy of Walls and Bridges. I kind of wanted it back, but she didn't want to part with it, and I understood. I only put on John's music for the entire week. Nothing else would do. I let her keep it a little while longer. On the following Monday, WBCN DJ Charles Alcadera returned from vacation. On his Big Mattress morning program, he discussed Lennon and how he was glad he was not on the air the previous week since it would have been so difficult to do a show under those circumstances. Then he played Yoko's Mrs. Lennon, followed by Happiness's Warm Gun. It was supposed to seg into a segment with Lori Cabot, the good witch from the East, who was scheduled to give her daily astrological report. However, La tribute to John got to her and she was unable to speak. They went to a commercial until she could regain her composure. I remember feeling so lucky and privileged to see John at 1972's one-to-one benefit concert at Madison Square Garden with Yoko and Elephant's Memory, along with Stevie Wonder, Roberta Flack, and Sean Anna. My father took my sister and me. It was the late show, and they did not hit the stage until almost midnight. It was the only time he played a complete rehearsed concert after the Beatles broke up. I remember there being empty seats behind the stage and thinking, how could this not be sold out? One year after the concert for Bangladesh and Imagine, two years after Let It Be? John had become extremely political since moving to New York in 1971, hanging out with Yippies, Abby Hoffman, and Jerry Rubin. Did people think this would be a feedback-drenched avant-garde freak show? I didn't understand it. Even if it was, it was John Lennon. How often do you get a chance to see a real-life Beatle in the flesh? I remember the stoner behind me talking to his girlfriend, saying things like I heard Clapton was at the afternoon show. He wasn't, of course. People said stuff like that all the time. Allen Ginsberg and Melanie Safka were there for the Give Peace a Chance finale, but I didn't realize that until much later. When I remained standing once the music started, Stoner Doon shouted for me to sit down. I did, of course, but this was John Lennon. I wanted to stand. This was the show against all others I would attend would be measured. I'd seen others that were in the vicinity of this greatness, but nothing ever tapped it nothing ever could. On the 20th anniversary of John's death, a reporter at the Quincy Patriot Ledger newspaper called the record store at which I worked and asked to speak with an employee to discuss Lennon and his legacy. Of course, since I was surrounded by punks and indie rockers, I was chosen conversation was going along smoothly with me telling a reporter how I used to watch Yoko and John on Eyewitness News New York. Investigative reporter Geraldo Rivera would regularly cover the Nixon administration's illegal deportation case against Lennon, and he was also the one who organized the one-to-one benefit concert. I spoke at length about how John affected my life when the reporter finally got around to asking me about how I dealt with the fact that the anniversary of John's murder coincided with my birthday. I responded I didn't mind it anymore. In fact, I kind of liked it. The reporter was incredulous. I explained that on my birthday, no matter where I was, I would most likely hear John's music somewhere. The interview ended abruptly. I didn't make the final cut. The reporter couldn't really have understood what John's music was all about. All I wanted to do was give him some truth. I still think of John and the Beatles every day, as I probably have every day since February 1964. And this year, we have a couple of reasons to celebrate. There's the Beatles' White Album box set, John's Imagine Deluxe Edition, the upgraded releases of John Yoko's Imagine and Give Me Some Truth movies. 38 years after the 40-year-old John was taken from us, so we still get to hear from him. It seems like a long time ago, but I think we need to hear him now more than ever. In some ways, he's still here with us. Anyway, thanks for listening. I have a few interviews already planned for this year. Please feel free to share, subscribe, and support my podcast should be available on Podbean, YouTube, iTunes, and possibly other platforms. Happy now year. See you soon.